0: Last week we considered the climax of the book of Acts, namely the Apostle Paul's witness for Christ before King Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. We encountered in Paul's speech the last of his five defenses of the Christian faith and the third of his three, of the three accounts of his conversion. So this was a very significant portion in Acts having shaken King Agrippa and Governor Festus with his proclamation of the Gospel in the auditorium there at Herod's palace on the sea at Caesarea. Paul is then returned to his prison cell in Caesarea. He will soon be headed for Rome by ship in the custody of a Roman centurion by the name of Julius. We are going to leave Paul in prison for a bit. And for a couple of weeks here, and to break off there. And what I'd like to do here today is to actually break not from Caesarea across to Rome, but to go back to Jerusalem. We go back to the people that Paul has left there. Back to a significant subplot in Paul's missionary journeys, which is uniquely applicable to our lives as a church right now, We've touched on this subplot several times, but we turn our attention back to Jerusalem and back to the believers that are there who are left behind as Paul has been brought to Caesarea. We remember that on Paul's last journey to Jerusalem, he doesn't know it's his last journey, but his last visit, that he brings this great monetary gift to the believers in the Jerusalem church to aid them in their ongoing economic struggles. And in the subtle plot line that unveils the details of that gift in the New Testament, I'm hopeful that we can gain some biblical counsel and pure motivation for the giving project that is on our doorstep as a church. As a church, just to make it clear again, we are approaching a target date of December the 6th. On that day, we will, by God's grace, anonymously declare... What we believe God would have us to do above and beyond our normal giving to focus on this project of relocation. I don't think there's anybody doing this because of pride of a building or somebody that just wants misery in their life. I think we're all doing this because, and realizing this will be a great challenge because we want to advance the cause of Christ and believe that this will be a tool that will enable us to do that. So it's a project that's very different than Paul's, but I think it has at its heart the very same motivations. And as we would pursue this project, Paul's efforts to collect gifts for the Jerusalem church provide a profoundly helpful example to us of how a New Testament church should interpret giving for the advance of the Gospel. As we saturate ourselves in this early church-giving project today, I pray that God will use the pertinent text to ground us in clear-headed biblical perspective. There are some things as we pass through Paul's writings on this issue, we're just not going to be able to believe anymore. There's a certain pious ideas and concepts that I think corrupt churches' thinking on giving that we're just going to have to leave in the dust because Paul does. But I hope as we go through this, we'll really get a sense of his heart. And not to improperly apply it, to say everything he's saying is exactly what we need to do in exactly the same way, but to look at the heart and the motivations and the way that he goes about this project. Let's get a sense of the historical backdrop of the project itself. Having promised his disciples that if he left, it would be better for them. Jesus ascends into heaven... He pours out the Holy Spirit upon His followers at Pentecost in Acts 2. Eventually, these Jewish believers begin to broadcast the Gospel of Jesus Christ to Gentiles, and Gentiles begin to respond. Now, from an ancient Near Eastern perspective particularly, the result is that the Gentile believers have a certain what one has called historical indebtedness. These Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ are the ones who have proclaimed the Gospel, and the Gentile believers would have had some sense of indebtedness to them, particularly if they were coached from a Jewish perspective in any way. Some Jewish Christians vehemently resisted the notion that Gentiles could come to Christ, could be part of the people of God apart from becoming Jews. But thankfully, the leadership in the church at Jerusalem was solid on this point. It knew that Christ's death and resurrection intended to incorporate Jews and Gentiles in one body. And now with the baptism of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, these leaders realize that the Gentile mission is appropriate and they support it. We witness this support in the story of the newly converted Saul of Tarsus, it's been a, a some time here, but in his first visit, his visit to Jerusalem, Saul of Tarsus meets with the apostles for the first time. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2. In the epistle to the Galatians, we find the origins of the idea for this gift that would come from Gentiles to the Jews there in Jerusalem. The epistle to the Galatians chapter 2 verse 9. And when James and Cephas, that is Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, indeed they were pillars in that early church, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They're to be commended in this, but on the other hand, what on earth were they supposed to do? The risen Christ that said, this man is mine to go to the Gentiles. But these leaders were at least respectable enough, love God enough to understand this was Christ's calling, and they said, Go. Go to the Gentiles. We will remain among the Jews here in Jerusalem and lead them. I think they, 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 Not that they stayed in Jerusalem all the time. I think they branched out certainly as well. But James was there, and that was their focus in evangelism. Now notice verse 10. If we don't know the context, this comes from left field. This just seems really weird. They say only... Paul reports only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Go on this Gentile mission but don't forget the poor here in Jerusalem. Why are they poor? What's going on here? We know there's been famine in recent years but secondly certainly there's social ostracism slash persecution that would make it economically difficult for them to find employment. Can you imagine finding job in a fairly small city where the Supreme Court is seated, the Supreme Court in Israel, to a man every last one doesn't want anything to do with Christianity? That's the city you live in, and you're now going to try to find employment as a follower of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there were high taxes in the sense that uniquely Jerusalem was was taxed by the Jews and the Romans. Then there were those who had came at Pentecost and probably left behind many of their roots and their connections economically, many descending upon the church. We have all of these things working together. These people were in desperate poverty. So much so that the leaders of the church say, Go off into the Gentile mission and don't forget the poor here. Don't forget the dire straits we're in. So, there's a desire then to see a gift come from the Gentiles to the church in Jerusalem. The apostles seem to fear, almost, that the Gentile mission will take off and fail to consider these circumstances. If the Gentiles will give of their wealth to support struggling believers in Jerusalem... This will serve a profound, what one is called, pledge of solidarity by the Gentile believers with the Jewish believers. This pledge of solidarity will say this. You have poured out your riches of the gospel to us. We are simply responding by pouring out our wealth to you to help you in your dire need. So the apostles are eager to see this connection made. They put the idea in Paul's head in one sense, in another sense he says, I was eager to do this. He, he had the same concept. Now, we're going to go from this setting then. Here's, here's these Jewish leaders saying, Go, but don't forget us. We're going to jump 20 years forward. 20 years ahead, Paul is poised to make what turns out to be his last voyage back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. And he writes to the Roman believers before he leaves from Corinth. So working uh, his way uh, down through Macedonia, he's here now at Corinth in Achaia. He writes to the church in Rome, the believers that are there. He wants help to go from them to Spain, but first he's going to go from here to Jerusalem. Remember, there's a plot and he has to actually go all the way around here. But he's going to make his way from Corinth to Jerusalem and then across to Rome. Now at this point he doesn't have any idea how he's going to get there. Uh, God knows, but it's interesting in the book of Romans that he writes to the Roman believers about this gift. Let's turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. We do have a number of texts to look through today, quite a bit of text to read through, but we'll mainly do that. We won't land long on anything. What we'd like to do is really kind of shake loose all that Paul wrote about this issue in the New Testament. I think as it all comes together, it really hits us in a unique way as opposed to taking it week after week uh, through in a process that way. Notice what he says, Romans chapter 15 and verse 24. I hope to see you in passage as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. What's the aid? The aid is this gift from the Gentile churches to the Jerusalem church. Verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So he's worked his way down south through Macedonia. He's come to at Corinth, and he's reporting that there are contributions now to take to Jerusalem, meriting the trip across the sea there. 27. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. That might strike us as rather odd if we don't understand the circumstances surrounding this gift they owe it to them why is that And look at his reasoning if the gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings that is the jews proclaim the gospel to gentiles initially they the gentiles ought to be of service to them the jews in material blessings i mean that's really the lower response isn't it they gave us the riches of all riches the blessings of salvation in christ it's just a small thing now for us to give to them financial resources to help them in their need. We, in a very parallel illustration, might not be far enough apart to even allow distance to understand, but I, I think it will help us in our setting. Imagine that we, as a church, somewhere down the road, go through a whole process of raising funds again in order to start a daughter church. And we really lay it on the line, and sacrifice and give to see this church started. We raise up and train up leaders within our assembly, and we take some of our people and they go to that church, and that church takes off, it thrives by the grace of God, and there's, there's development and growth, and it's really going forward. Then we as the mother church back here suddenly run into some dire financial troubles. Our daughter church is thriving and growing. There's some struggles that are here and we really need help, and the daughter church just goes on its way and acts like we've never had a problem in the world. Now, how would you look at that? We'd say, oh, that's, not, that's really something not right about that. Now, there's other churches out there that we would never think would help us at all. We wouldn't even think of them helping us. But this daughter church, if, if that gets a little bit at the heart of what the psychological idea is here, That this Jerusalem church is the mother church. They have shared the gospel of Christ with Gentiles. And it's not been all that easy. There's been a lot of problems with it, but they have shared the gospel of Christ. Should we not respond and give to them in their need? The only right thing to do is for the Gentiles to aid the Jerusalem church. And so, verse 28, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected... I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ." So from Corinth to Jerusalem to Rome to Spain is his plan. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Well, wouldn't it be acceptable? If somebody came with massive amounts of money to help the poor that are struggling in your church, why would it not be acceptable? Well, what if an abortion provider came into our church contact and provided $100,000 for a new church building? I don't think we'd take it. No, I know we wouldn't take it. We'd say, that's really tempting, but that's not money we're going to receive. That might be a little overstated, but there are Jews within the context of the believer's in Jerusalem, that might look at Paul's gift along those kinds of lines. And undoubtedly, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem, would have definitely seen it in those kind of terms. You are receiving gifts from Gentiles. We knew there was something wrong with you people. This is a volatile issue. And Paul pleads that there would be prayer and that God would mercifully move that this gift would be acceptable to the saints. Would not be to the unbelievers in Jerusalem. But he even is concerned that it would be acceptable to the believers. So, verse 32, that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Very clear what he's doing here. Several years prior to this letter. Paul's working his way down through Macedonia and is seeking to collect these very gifts that he's going to take from Corinth to Jerusalem. These very gifts, the idea that was put in his head originally by the leaders of the Jerusalem church some two decades before. He's taking these gifts, receiving these gifts, and he writes to the Corinthian church, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. In his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 16 and verse 1, he says, "...now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do." What collection for the saints? This is the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. This is a major giving project. Paul's going to give about five years of his life to raising these funds for these believers. The word collection is a very specific Greek term. It is not used of collecting taxes. It's used of collecting free will gifts and offerings. This is the kind of collection that it is. It's not a tax on the church. It's not indulgences, certainly. But it is a free will reception. Paul now lays out some of the specific ground rules that he expects from the Corinthians in the process of raising these funds. Verse 2, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. On the Lord's Day, they were to systematically set aside gifts for the project. There would be no emotional appeals and impassioned speeches when Paul arrived to try to stir people up to raise funds quickly. That's not the way this is going to work. We're not going to go about it that way. We certainly could go about it that way. And we could go about it that way as a church, couldn't we? I can see it now. We lower the lights and we light some candles and we put on the right kind of mood music and then we show the video thing. You know, we got pictures of the church life flashing in front of us and this uh, teary-eyed appeal and then as people walk out from this one emotional service, everybody signs a card. And you know what's going to happen. People are going to sign things that they shouldn't be signing. That's not at all the process, is it here? You put it aside week by week, systematically, patiently, week in and week out. You can't do that on the fumes of emotion. This is a week in, week out project. In fact, we'll find that the Corinthians weren't doing it at all. Uh, But it's it's a systematic way of accumulating these uh, proceeds that could then be given to Paul without fanfare, As He comes into town, they simply deliver the total to Him and He takes it to Jerusalem. That's the way this is going to work, Paul said. And notice that it's as a person may prosper. Someone may not prosper. He's not leaning on and pressing individuals who are unable to give because they've not prospered. It's only according to prosperity. Their gifts were to reflect the way in which God prospered them, whether great or little or not at all. Now there's another thing, Paul says, verse 3, "...and when I arrive, I will send those who you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me." We'll figure that out when we get there. So notice, the church is to determine individuals who have the stamina, the courage, and the spiritual fortitude to make the harrowing journey by sea to Jerusalem to convey the gift. There can't be any, I mean, this is difficult to travel in this day, and you're guarding real money in bags, coin. That's what you're carrying across this long journey. You've got to have certain people who can pull that off. You cannot afford somebody who's going to get tired of the journey or fearful of the dangers and say, I'm going home halfway there. You cannot afford that. It's got to be people that you're going to select as a church who you know can pull this off and give this time to this project. And we notice that these agents are independently commissioned by the Corinthian church to provide accountability to Paul. He's not going to come and handpick individuals. You are going to handpick individuals, and this provides that accountability for him. A couple of years pass, then, And Paul writes another letter to the Corinthians. While journeying through Macedonia toward Corinth, Paul pens the classic passage on giving in the New Testament. It would be my wish to linger in it much longer, but as we go to 2 Corinthians chapters 8-9, through the task of this day is to try to get an overview of all of this material. So we're going to work our way through these two chapters rather rapidly. But Paul is concerned about the Corinthians. If you just look at it again on the map, He's here in Macedonia, there's Berea, there's Philippi, there's Thessalonica. He's working his way down through the believers, but as he's working his way down to Corinth, his last stop before journeying across to Jerusalem, he's not real pleased with what is coming out of Corinth. He's concerned about it. He's talking to these Macedonian churches. So have that background in mind will be crucial. Verse 1 of chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, note the phrase, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What is Paul boasting about? Not about, you guys get a load of this. This is the total I've raised from the Macedonian churches. That's not what he says, is it? That's not what he rejoices in. What he's rejoicing in is the grace of God in their lives. His boast is the grace of the Lord. The Macedonians were themselves suffering tremendous economic trial and severe persecution as well. Put this together. This is beautiful. Their suffering did not squelch their joy, did it? Verse 2. Their suffering does not squelch their joy any more than their poverty squelches their desire to give to God's work. In their persecution, they have joy. In their poverty, they long to give to the work that Paul is carrying forward here. Verse 3, "...for they gave according to their means." as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See what he's saying. They gave a free will. Not because I leaned on them. Not because we had the perfect fundraising process. They wanted to be a part of this work of God. Can we please participate in this gift? We as Gentiles want to pour out our gifts, whatever we have, and what Paul's kind of telling us here is it's really not all that much. They were impoverished people who gave out of their poverty, and some apparently gave even more than you would ever expect, but the point is they wanted participation in the work that God was doing. Verse 6, so accordingly we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So not only does Paul challenge the Corinthians with the example of the Macedonian believers, he's now informing them, I'm sending Titus ahead of me on the way to oversee the collection for this Jerusalem project. I say this, verse 8, not as a command, not commanding you that you must give, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. It's not a command. There's no pressure there. Does Paul say there's no pressure at all? He's kind of just saying, hey, guy, you know, the Macedonians have made your life a little bit tough. They've come up with unbelievable gifts and I am boasting in them as I come to you. I'm boasting about you as I'm meeting with them. So I'm sending Titus ahead to make sure you guys come through. I say this, verse 8, not as a command, but to prove the earnestness, by the earnestness of others, that's the Macedonians, that your love Joins with theirs. It's genuine in Christ. So, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. The Macedonians gave out of their poverty. Jesus gave out of His wealth. The more wealth we have, the more we understand the wonder of that statement on that level. The Macedonians didn't have a whole lot to give, so it wasn't possible for them to risk a whole lot. Jesus had everything, and He gave it all, so that we, through His poverty, might be rich. By leaving the splendors of heaven in His incarnation and death, Jesus made us infinitely rich. That's not precisely how this is going to work with the gift to Jerusalem. What this is, is the motivation behind it. He's not going to ask them, I want you to become infinitely poor so that they become infinitely rich. But what he's saying is that's what Jesus did for you. And that's what motivates us in all of this. Verse 10. For a whole year, the Corinthian church had been talking about giving to this project. What they needed to do was to act upon their good desires. Now, if the ability wasn't there, Paul wasn't asking they'd give what they didn't have. But what he was saying is, you know, you guys, procrastination is the mortal enemy of all giving projects. You have great desires. You've talked about it for over a year now. You've said, we're going to give to this project. We're going to give to this project. We want to be part of the grace of God and what He's doing here. And Paul's saying, I'm not really seeing it coming in. You're talking, but you're not acting. So let's get it done. Procrastination is the mortal enemy of all giving projects. So is cynicism. Verse 13, he addresses that. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack, drawing from that aspect of the manna. But what's the point? The idea is not to lift the travails of the Jerusalem church by creating equal travails in the, among the Corinthians. Now, thinking of that gathering of the manna, everybody gathered, everyone had enough, the idea here is to care for those in dire need, not to impoverish you. But let's put that cynical idea to rest. I'm not coming to fleece you to help them. Verse 16, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you, For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you on his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. I don't know who that is for sure. We don't know, but perhaps Apollos... And not only that, but He has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord Himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man." Paul labors to make sure that his reputation in the eyes of man is not tainted by the way that he handles this money. He is going to be above reproach in everything that he does with these funds. Verse 22 And with them we're sending our brother. That is with Titus and this other unnamed brother. We're sending this other unnamed brother. I think Paul's getting old here. He's forgetting names or something, or maybe just wants to hide their identity. But he says, my other brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many w- matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of this great confidence in you. He's excited, this apparently young man, to come down to you there in Corinth because I keep telling him how wonderful this experience is going to be and how you're going to really come through and you're going to give to this project and he can't wait to get down there and to be part of the process with you as we rejoice in the grace of God. That's Paul saying, don't disappoint the guy. These three are coming ahead of me. Don't disappoint them. As for Titus, verse 23, he is my partner. He's my fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of your boasting about you to these men. Now, verse 1 of chapter 9, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. I don't really need to do that. You know what the ministry of the saints is. We've been talking about this project for a long time. So I won't repeat that we want to bring this gift to the Jerusalem believers and why we want to bring it. Verse 2, 4, I know your readiness. You're ready to participate of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Now, isn't that ironic? It's the Corinthian zeal to give that's moving the Macedonian believers, and the Corinthians aren't actually giving. Not, not much. But I'm sending, verse 3, the brothers, so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. You get what he's doing here. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Titus, these two brothers are coming to receive the gift you promised. I don't want to show up with certain Macedonians that I've been bragging about you to them and we show up in town and there's nothing there. Remember I said at the beginning of the sermon, there's, there's certain things we're going to have to leave in the dust. And one of them is this pious idea that we should never put on any pressure in any way, shape or form. Believe me, there's wrong pressure. And this text is very careful to steer clear of that pressure. It is free will. You give according to prosperity as God puts it in your heart to give. But that doesn't mean we tiptoe around and never talk about money. Paul's saying you people made a commitment. You made a promise. You are motivating others with your enthusiasm. You're not motivating anybody with what you've actually given. So come through with what you've said you're going to do. He's leaning on them pretty hard here. He's pressing them in the right way with the right motivation. What is that right motivation? You've wanted to be part of what God is doing in His grace. Join in. Verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. How have the Macedonians sown? Oh, bountifully. It doesn't make any difference if they got a lot or little. They've sown bountifully, unquestionably. And they're going to reap bountifully. You haven't sown bountifully. Fill in the blanks. Each one must give as he has made up his mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. That's not the motivation here. Not pressing you and twisting your arm so that under compulsion you give. God loves a cheerful giver. Not Not a giver who's got their arm twisted behind their back and is about to scream, uncle. That doesn't please God at all. Don't take my pressure that way. I'm pressuring you by the way of encouraging you to join in to what God wants to do by His grace as He's done in the Macedonian lives, and I want Him to do it in your life. So, verse 9, as it is written, He's distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Psalm 112, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgivings to God. What an amazing word of assurance. You're not going to give so much that you can never give again. If you work through it rationally, logically, prayerfully, seeking what, God, would you permit me to do to join in the work that you're doing, God is going to continue to supply your need to give again. He is going to, in fact, put in your hands what you give. I will never, by the grace of God, stand before you and tell you I know what God's doing. I don't think we ever know what God's doing entirely. But there's certain times He bangs you right over the head, and it's pretty tough to miss. And I believe in just his mercy to me, and I share this with you as I am called to do, that he's brought this these verses into reality in our life as a family here recently. Coming to the end of 2009 and saying, our giving bullets are pretty well spent, they're getting close. How on earth can we come on December 6th and put anything more than what we've given already? This became a matter of prayer, a matter of focus, a matter of concern. Thinking, I want to be part of this work. I want to set an example that no numbers are ever revealed or anything like that. But I really know, I know God knows we want to give. How are we going to do that between here and December? I can't say we did a ton of praying about it, but we were praying about it. Completely, unexpectedly, Never in a million years did I believe this would ever happen to us in any way, shape, or form. There's some people that came to our house and delivered to us a check. It was an inheritance check. The nuances and the distance between us and the person giving the money is unbelievable. It shouldn't happen. There was a premature death and a lot of family issues that led to us receiving this check in our hands from somebody who isn't dead yet. Now, it's my wife's side, so I'm going to go pretty careful here. (laughs) But she's got the thing divided up seven ways, and immediately, you know how that is, if any money ever comes, you say, no, I don't. We don't either. It's never happened to us in our life. Doubt that it ever will. But I stress, this person's not dead yet. Why now? And as that happens, you get money, and immediately you go, pew, 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 it's gone. Ten ways. And I'm doing the same thing in my head, going, pew, 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 it's gone. Ten ways. And then it's slowly, not real slowly, but it dawned on us, God brought that money to our door. He brought it to our door in answer to prayer it was pretty clear what he wanted done with it. And as we talked through it, we kind of then worked ourselves down to, maybe we could keep 10%. <laughs> and we worked back and forth on it. And it, it was amazing to just watch her heart and to know what God was doing in my heart. To come to just say, this money could be helpful on a lot of lines with a lot of different things, and even a lot of different people. God brought this money to our door to put in the plate 100%. And we had to let it go. And that was, what I tell you, an excruciatingly difficult thing? That, you know, there's going to be a magnetic force on our hand when we put that check into the offering plate? No. What joy to know that God has done that, and that we have the privilege to give. He has supplied a need to participate in this gift. I think that's exactly what this passage is indicating, not that it will always work that way. Don't wait for somebody to come to the door. I don't know that will happen to anybody else, but it's said to me, God is answering prayer, he's moving and is this ever a challenge of materialism? But we praise God for what He's done. He'll supply so that you can give. 4, verse 12 The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the Gospel of Christ. That's what's at the heart of it. The gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Chapter 9 and verse 15. We go back to chapter 8. We see it is the gospel which is at the heart of all of the motivation, it grounds the giving that we do, and the redemptive grace of Christ is the issue. Bear with me a bit longer, but I think we need to draw some ideas from this. There is, let me say again, some Christians piously dismissive of organized efforts at raising money for the cause of Christ. They say that it's unworthy of the faith of Jesus. I ask you, what would Paul say? What would Paul say to that? Now, undoubtedly, there's false motivation, and he steers clear of that every time. Is there no motivation? I'll tell you, if I'm receiving this letter as the Corinthians, and I'm the Corinthian pastor standing before you to read this epistle from Paul, that wasn't an easy part of the letter to read, was it? Paul's leaning on them in an appropriate way, saying, where's your heart? What are you holding on to? What are you trusting? Where are you at? How has God prospered? won't be the same for everyone, but He leans upon them in a proper way. And I think it blows away the idea piously that we somehow can just ignore the issue of money and that everything will work itself out. I think what's, that's rooted much more in the idea that we don't want anybody messing around with the idolatries of our heart. And when we start talking about my money is mine... You leave me alone to give what I privately think about giving to God. Never say a word about it. There's more behind that. It's not Paul's way. What is his way? Giving projects require careful management. Think about it. I don't think I've got it all here, and forgive me for just writing out my notes here. But he hatched an idea in his mind that would benefit the cause of Christ. Again, put there by others certainly as well, but he was eager to do it. There was this idea that came to him. Paul had to carefully think through the basic guidelines of how gifts should be collected. He had to coordinate the timing of the collections. He had to take careful precautions through specific procedures to assure that he not be personally accused of embezzling funds. That didn't just happen. Oh, we know Paul. Everybody trusts him. Not at all. He had to work very carefully to make sure that everybody knew he was above reproach. The Corinthians had to understand, communicate to one another, and submit to the Apostle Paul's instructions concerning how and when they collected their gifts as a church. Every Lord's Day, people had to be organized and prepared to collect those gifts and to secure them until Paul's arrival. Giving projects require careful management. Continued, Paul urged Titus to travel to Corinth and there to raise gifts from the Corinthians. Titus apparently did this at least twice. Paul had to select and dispatch two fellow workers to travel with Titus. Before sending them, Paul gained the approval of several Macedonian churches to do so. We're going to get together. We have to have a meeting. We've got to talk as a church. Who are the people that you want to send with me? Who will you approve for this service? The Macedonian churches had to weigh in. They had to think through it. Some people had to be ignored and some people had to be chosen. Chosen. The Corinthian church had to develop a plan by which to appoint trusted individuals from their membership to serve as agents to both guard and convey the church's monetary gift to the Jerusalem believers. Which leads to the next thing. Funds had to be raised, supplies had to be gathered, and travel arrangements made to enable these agents to make the long, risky journey to Jerusalem. That's not getting any money there. That's supplying the needs of those who are getting the money there. And that had to be fairly significant because of the length of the journey, the danger of the journey in that day and the way that money was conveyed. For us, it's click our fingers and it goes. not quite sure how that works, but it happens. They had to carry bags of money. And they had to get it through robbers and thieves and all kinds of plots and potentially even a sunken ship. These had to be certain people. And Paul spent a considerable amount of of time writing and speaking to influence and motivate others concerning this gift over an approximately five-year period of his life. I have no doubt he had mental skills that were way beyond the capacity of anybody here. I'm sure that he wrote quickly, but I'm telling you, chapters 8 and 9 were not done quickly. I don't care how smart he was. You don't write like that, just sketch it out real quick and send it on. This was carefully thought through argumentation, being very careful to lean just as hard as it should and not to lean at other places where it shouldn't, to avoid false motivation and to pursue right motivations. It is a beautiful tractate about the Gospel and how it works itself out. This took him time. Giving projects require careful Management. Secondly, our gifts should never be coerced, but should be the result of rational, prayerful thought to know what God wants us to do, what He wants indeed to do through me. Thirdly, God's grace alone produces the willingness to give to the cause of Christ. It's His grace that will make it happen. Faithful giving, number four, hurts. Faithful giving hurts. It does not utterly impoverish. God doesn't want that to be the case. And you might say, again, piously, well, probably the best thing that I can do here is give all of my wealth away and trust God to provide my needs for me. That is not what he says, is it? Give according to what you have received. Yes, there were the Macedonians who even gave out of their poverty, beyond their ability. But as a general rule, God is not asking us to give something that's ridiculous and foolish. But He's saying, look honestly at your prosperity. Look honestly at what you can do, and you'll know, I think, everyone that we've given less than we could have. The question is just where do I want that line to be and how do I want to participate with what God is doing? And then finally, the ultimate motivation for giving is the Gospel. Eight, nine, nine, fifteen. The truth is, is that we are eternally rich. Now let's say this week a check does show up at your door. We won't worry about the details here. It's just an illustration, but it's $10 million dollars. As the dividing starts up in your head, (laughs) you've got a project to work on. But the money's going to come, let's say, that actually the check is just noticed, but the money's going to come Thursday. It's Wednesday. And you're out in the work-a-day world, and you've got $40 in your pocket, and that's it, and it's really all the cash you have, and you don't really have anything else but $40 to your name at the moment, but tomorrow you're going to be a millionaire. And somebody legitimately in need asks you for $20. Would you be willing to donate that to this issue? And it's a legitimate situation. How do you look at that donation? It's Wednesday. I've got $40. And tomorrow, I'm going to have $10 million. Here's the $20, right? Now, there's a sense that illustrates where we are as the followers of Christ We have an eternity of infinite wealth that's ours. It's not a matter that we might earn it, we might get there. It is the promise of God which is as solid as anything in the universe. That we have in eternity riches forever. I think as we focus on that, it will affect the way that we deal with giving here. In the analogy, here we've only got 40 bucks in our pocket, but we're not living for this world. This isn't where we hit it rich. We have an inheritance in eternity, and we have the ability to invest money there. It needs to be rational. It needs to be honorable. It needs to be according to to what God has given us, it's possible that someone could give money in such a way as to become a problem to all kinds of other people. That's not what God is saying. But what He's saying is, you'll hold on to the 40 bucks pretty loosely when you realize that you have in your future the riches of eternity in Christ. He was rich, but for our sakes He became poor, that through His poverty we might be rich. I may speak to someone here. You are in absolute, desperate spiritual poverty because you do not know Christ in a saving way. Your sins have not been forgiven. As you stand and look forward to that future reward and the eternity filled with riches, it's not yours. It's not there. What you must do is realize that Christ poured out His riches coming to this earth to die, to pay the penalty of sin. We must come to trust and embrace that truth and His resurrection power, and then we will be rich. That changes the way that we see everything. We've targeted December 6th as a day when we will anonymously declare our three-year-long commitment to give. To give above and beyond our regular giving, to relocate this ministry to Highway 13 in Burnsville. You answer the question in your own mind. If Paul was going to show up on December 6th, how would he talk to us? I don't think he'd be afraid of talking about money. And I don't think he'd be afraid about talking about Christ who through his poverty has made us rich. Now someone might say, and I don't have time to dwell on it, but there's a huge difference between giving to poor and building and building. Well, one could argue that the gift to the Jerusalem church really wasn't a need. God will supply every need according to his riches and glory. I think Paul would demonstrate that, that whether wealthy or poor, God will supply our needs. We can be content wasn't a need for them in that sense but I also think the thinking is extremely nearsighted gifts to the poor of Jerusalem were consumed fairly quickly and that was the end of it we know for sure by 70 AD there wasn't anything else going on there it was gone fairly quickly now I obviously it intended as an investment in the unity of the church but acts provides no confidence the gift accomplished anything close to what Paul intended It was a gift to people in poverty, and those people continued in poverty. The poor remained everywhere. It was consumed fairly quickly. It received just a brief mention in 2417. A building, by comparison, is a tool for ministry that could serve in perpetuity. But I don't think we should get too nearsighted. Giving to the poor is a very noble effort, building a building is not. I think what we've got to do is get past that to the real issue, that when we encounter challenges such as a major giving project, it's not merely a giving project, it's a sanctification project. Now, it can be handled in such a way that it's nothing but a mess and a dishonor to Christ. But if it's handled appropriately where we're looking at our heart and asking what does God want to do through me, that may be nothing, that may be a lot, But I'm asking, honestly, what is that? This is not so much a giving project. This is a sanctification project. God is using this place where we've come as a church to root out idolatry, to show us where our love really is, and to teach us the wonders of the gospel. Though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich as we see that truth, we will live differently and we will look at our resources differently. May God work His grace in us. That's all we can ask. That's all we can desire. That His grace would operate for us to get on the page with Him as to what He wants to do through us to the glory of our Savior. Let's bow for prayer. Father, meet with us. I plead in behalf of anyone who's separated from Christ and doesn't know the richness of that relationship. I pray that You would break hearts and draw people to know You. For those of us who do, we rejoice in Your presence. And I pray that You will continue to sanctify us by the truth. Through Christ we pray. Amen.